0: Hey there all, this is just a quick note that you're about to hear a classic episode of ours plucked from the archives while the team and I enjoy some vacation time. We all hope that you're getting some days off as well. In addition to taking some time during the season to contemplate the historical and contemporary plight of Native peoples, I am sure that you'll also be thinking about holiday shopping. Now look, am I being ironic or is that just true? Why not both? What's also true is that we could use all the financial help that we can get... And so this year, there's only one URL that you need to remember to find all of our favorite partners for the gift-giving season, and that's bestoftheleft.com slash holiday. There, you'll find links to our merch store on TeePublic, where you'll find not just our designs, but designs from thousands of amazing artists making tons of great stuff. Honestly, just use our link to get there so they know we sent you, but then go explore the whole store. You won't be disappointed. And aside from merch, you'll also find links to our bookshop.org store for physical books and Libro.fm for all of your audiobook needs. Both help fund local brick-and-mortar bookshops with your purchases. And Libro is offering credit bundles that make great gifts. You can buy audiobook credits, and your recipient can then choose almost any book from their catalog, regardless of the price— And it's theirs for free. And between November 23rd and 28th, they're running a sale and those credit bundles will be 10% off. And on their blog, you can find them highlighting 10 audiobooks to read during Native American Heritage Month, because they're also the kind of folks who need to unironically blend the contemplation of Native peoples with the need for holiday sales. And then finally, of course, you'll find best of left gift memberships that never go out of style, Again, find all this at bestofleftcom slash holiday for all your holiday shopping needs. Bestoftheleft.com slash holiday. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome to this episode of the award winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the literal and figurative bloody messes of the history of Thanksgiving and the identities of native peoples. Clips today come from Code Switch, Democracy Now, In the Thick. Science for the People and Intercepted.
1: A lot of people out there are conflicted about this very American holiday and, you know, for good reason. People like Elizabeth Hoover, she's part Mohawk, and she's an American Studies professor at Brown University.
2: So I'm of two minds about Thanksgiving. The general sentiment that people have today about this holiday is that it's supposed to be a time that you get together with your family and you talk about the things that you are thankful for and you have a big meal. And that's really what the holiday should just be.
3: But that's hard to swallow, Hoover says, if you know the real history behind
4: Thanksgiving.
2: Thanksgiving by the English was after massacres, so after events like the Pequot Massacre, where the English went in and burned people alive in their homes. And then everybody who ran out to try to avoid the flames was stabbed and shot. And so after the return of the English from that event, That was labeled as a Thanksgiving, and the pilgrims' idea of Thanksgiving was not a big meal, sit around and hang out and have a nice time. They spent the entire day in cold churches praying, so it was a very different kind of event than we're celebrating today.
1: There was a meal, though, in the 1620s. It's a meal that Hoover describes really as a tense business meeting between the white colonists and the Wampanoag people. It bore almost no resemblance to the story that most of us know today. You know, Indians and pilgrims sitting down, chilling, having a peaceful feast, that whole thing. It wasn't until 1863 that Abraham Lincoln made Thanksgiving a national holiday as a way to unite the country after the Civil War.
3: The spread of that Happy Thanksgiving meal myth, says Hoover, papered over the fact that within a generation of the tense meal that took place in the 1600s, there was the attempted genocide of Native Americans across the U.S.
2: On the holiday that's now reserved as Thanksgiving, some people take that opportunity to just get together with their relatives and have a nice meal. And some people organized protests and different events to try to make America more aware of the real history around this time and that the pilgrims were not great people. So I guess that's my Thanksgiving spiel.
4: As much of the United States prepares to mark Thanksgiving this weekend, many Native Americans will gather in Plymouth to commemorate the 47th National Day of Mourning. This year is dedicated to water protectors at Standing Rock and to the struggle for recognition of Indigenous People's Day. To discuss this and more, we're joined in San Francisco by Indigenous historian and activist Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She's the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States and co-author of All the real Real Indians Died Off, and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans. Uh, Welcome back uh, to Democracy Now! uh, Roxanne. Uh, Could you tell us, as the nation prepares to observe uh, Thanksgiving, a national holiday ostensibly meant to honor Native people, uh, what are your thoughts?
5: Well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, Actually, it's never been about honoring Native Americans. It's been about the origin story of the United States, the beginning of genocide, dispossession, and constant warfare from that time, actually from 1607 in Jamestown, uh, until the present. Uh, it's a colonial system that was set up. There's a sort of annual, um, uh, calendar. Uh, for this origin story, beginning with Columbus, October 12th. Why celebrate Columbus? It was the onset of colonialism, the slave trade and dispossession of the Native people of the Americas. So that is celebrated with a federal holiday. Uh, that's followed then by Thanksgiving, which is uh, a a uh, completely made up story to say the Native people welcomed Uh, These people who are going to devastate their civilizations, uh, which is simply a lie. Uh, And then you go to uh, President's Days, the Founding Fathers in February, and celebrate uh, these slave owners, uh, Indian killers. George Washington headed the Virginia militia uh, for the very purpose of killing uh, Native people on the periphery of uh, the colony. Uh, before, you know, when it was still Virginia Colony. And then we have uh, the big day, the fireworks, July 4th, uh, Independence, which is probably the most tragic event in world history, because it gave us, it gave the world uh, a genocidal regime under the guise of democracy. And um, that's really the I'm a historian so that's the historical context that I think we have to uh see thanksgiving in that it is it is a part of that mythology that attempts to cover up uh the real history of the United States uh it, it actually when it was introduced as a holiday uh, by Abraham Lincoln during the civil war there was no mention of pilgrims and uh Native people or food or pumpkins or anything like that. It was simply a day uh, for families to be together and mourn their dead and be grateful uh, for the living. And I think that's an appropriate holiday uh, that that uh, how people should enjoy it. But they should take uh, Native Americans and Puritans out of the picture for it to be a legitimate holiday of a feast and and sharing with family and friends. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, the people at Plymouth, uh, I send greetings to them. Uh, they have, for many years, I think it's almost 40 years now, that uh, stood up and and uh, testified to uh, the lie of Plymouth Rock, the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, and, uh, And um, this is very hard for people to give up. This is the national nationalism. It's actually Americanism uh, is um, white supremacy and uh, represents negative things. There's almost no way to uh, reconcile it. It simply has to be deconstructed and faced up to. And otherwise, there will be no social change that's meaningful for anyone.
6: I just want to state that um, before we start with a lot of these really important numbers, I think if we think about the fact that Native American women have always been kind of seen as a threat, it gives us a context for what we're seeing in the United States today. Like they were the first ones who were dealing with being seen as other on their own land. And that's a legacy that we can't forget when we're talking about these Data points. So listen to this and just take note. So it's estimated that every year, 300 indigenous women and girls go missing in the United States and Canada. And four out of five Native American women will experience violence in their lifetimes. More than half will survive domestic violence or sexual assault. The CDC reported that in 2016, the third leading cause of death Mm. for Native American and Alaskan Native women ages 10 to 24 third leading cause of death is murder. For women 25 to 34, it's the fourth leading cause of death. The National Crime Information Database uh, reports that as of 2016, there were nearly 6,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women. Mm -hmm. And all of this is fueling the fight for a hashtag that, you know, is just not as mainstream as Me Too. And it's the hashtag MMIWG movement which stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls.
7: Yeah, but it's not just about the numbers. It's part of the daily life of many indigenous women in these two countries. The Intercept explains that this is a movement that originated, quote, from the fact that so many indigenous women knew someone who has died violently or disappeared and that it identifies the generations long elimination of thousands of women from indigenous communities as a direct result of government attempts to
6: eliminate indigenous culture. Right. And I guess we have to put it in that context. Yeah. Jenny, you know, again, um, as an indigenous Native American, help us to understand the bigger picture of this issue and its historical context and why this needs to matter to us now amidst everything that's going on.
8: Well, I think what's important is that while this issue is generating a lot of interest right now, and I think that's the big takeaway, um, at the high note is that there is finally attention being paid for people like me and Anita and a lot of other people in Indian country. This issue is far from new. In fact, uh there's a real common understanding among our people that the reality is we hardly know anyone who may not have been touched by violence. And that's how severe this situation is. While the hashtag is about missing and murdered indigenous women, there's an overarching theme of violence that hmm. has just run through our narrative across generations. And I think to really understand this issue, you cannot ignore that kind of trauma on that that kind of level.
7: Right, and it's important like I said before that the data it made it plays an important role in creating awareness of this epidemic of violence and understanding the issue. And Anita like Maria said, you've been building this the largest database of missing and murdered indigenous women in the US and Canada. And looking at what you've done, you've been collecting data back since the 1900s. You have a list of nearly 3000 women over half of these cases are of murdered indigenous women. A third are girls younger than 18 years old. What is it with the young women? I know. Mm-hmm. And it's something important about this data that it is in public. You say, Anita, that the data is sacred and there are spirits represented within the data. So how did you begin collecting this information? What inspired you to do this? And what is this data showing about this violence that targets indigenous women?
9: I started collecting the data when I found that, you know, there are lists online, there are folks who have been working on this. I mean, I'm 27 and this movement has been around my whole life. So as Jenny was saying, this is something that's, you know, run deep through our communities for a long time. So there are resources out there, but none of them match. Most aren't updated frequently. None of them include both Canada and the U.S. And so I felt like I had a responsibility to fill in that gap you know case in point last night i was up till 3am updating the database there's now over 3000 cases in it the number is now 3032
7: whoa yeah and what why is this so important to you
9: for a couple reasons uh partially because i am a survivor of violence myself um i experienced domestic violence that almost killed me um and as well as other forms of violence and so you know if if i hadn't been able to survive i um I would want my story to have meaning. I would want to be part of the movement to make sure that that kind of violence doesn't happen to other generations of indigenous women and girls beyond that, in terms of you know the dedication to it and staying up till three a m um, this database has been a labor of love for the last three years, and I've been fortunate to get to meet so many families and community members who are just carrying so much grief and yet are also so resilient hmm. and so strong and wanting to advocate for their loved ones that, you know, when you're surrounded by that for years, um, it becomes part of your daily life to be really dedicated to this.
5: So how are advances in genetic science and technology changing the conversation about membership, if if it is at all?
10: Well, what what has happened is I think it's pretty pervasive in the United States now. And I've also seen it among First Nations in Canada that uh, tribal governments are using DNA testing, but not the genetic, uh, ancestry testing that comes from human population genetics that I was talking about, they're using a DNA parentage tests. So the DNA profile that's used in say, you know, for forensic science or, or criminal cases, or when you just need to do a paternity test, that's a really different kind of DNA test. But what they're doing is, um, if quite often, if they're, if, a, if, if parentage is in question, um, it's paternity, obviously. And if somebody, say, needs to document their paternal line in order to show what their lineal descent is from a base role, so the base tribal roles that were put together around the allotment time, or if they need to prove their blood quantum, they may need that father's lineage. And if it's not sure that that, the person they're claiming as their father is their biological father, they'll come in and do a DNA test. Uh, This is pretty pervasive. Now, most tribes will do it on a case-by-case basis, but what you have seen in this has gotten tribal enrollment even more bad press, as you've seen a very few, very wealthy casino tribes with very small populations who divide up uh, casino benefits among individual tribal members. And in those very wealthy tribes, you know, this can be a a million dollars a year or something per member. Those tribes have moved to across the board DNA testing, and they have actually ended up, of course, if you go into a room and you DNA test everybody for parentage, you're going to come out with some falsely attributed biological parentage in there. You know, you could have it as high as 10%. People don't have the biological father they think they have. So that's what happens if you go in and test a whole population, right? And then some people have gotten thrown off the rolls because they were tracing their descent from somebody listed on a base roll. And there's a, there's a break there in lineage, right?
5: So you go into depth in your book about how genetic testing companies are very specifically targeting Native American people and tribes, at least some of them are. Um, What's going on here? And why are they targeting Native American tribes specifically?
10: Well, so I've seen DNA testing companies pop up that are selling the genetic ancestry test to the public, uh people that are interested in researching their family tree, and that's all really interesting. But they might also offer paternity tests, because I think there's probably... I don't know what the breakdown is in terms of profit, but there's a good market for paternity testing, uh, and so these these same companies um, who might have uh, you know researchers involved that are doing the genetic ancestry stuff are also you know trying to make money off selling paternity tests, and so you know they're just they're trying to make money, right? And uh, so they'll go to tribal conferences. There are different national tribal conferences that happen, and they'll set up with with a lot of at the trade show that happens. I this I've seen this happen at National Congress of American Indians. Which which is a huge annual conference. Uh, I've heard of it happening at the um, National Indian Gaming Association conferences where they'll, they'll set up in the, on the trade, trade show floor and talk to tribes about DNA testing. Um, so, you know, they're, they're companies trying to make money like anybody else, I don't see an agenda beyond that, although what I do see them doing is sort of um, preaching this idea that there is some scientifically objective way to do your membership based on DNA testing. And of course, that's not true. Membership is highly politicized. It's highly subjective. Uh, and you can decide to plug a DNA test into su- to support those political decisions or not. But there is no scientifically neutral way to decide who should be a member of a tribe or not.
5: You talk a little bit in the book about some of the problematic messaging that you were seeing in some of the marketing efforts, things about being able to scientifically tell whether or not someone, uh, someone's ancestry belongs to a very specific tribe.
10: Right, which is completely false. Um, And what that tells me is that the genetic scientists doing this work don't understand the way that tribe is defined. They are conflating a tribal community or a First Nation with a biological or genetic population. Now, first of all, on the scientific front, there's already huge debates and problems with acting as if any genetic population is ever a discrete thing. So you've got lots of social scientists and historians of science who really take to task scientists who use the word population in a way that retains too many old school racial ideas. That's a whole body of literature. But aside from that, aside from the problems with how one defines population genetically, we also have how one defines a tribe socially and politically. And scientists, for the most part, don't understand that history. So tribes are certainly comprised of people that are related biologically but you have to go back to the to the era of colonization largely in the 19th century post-indian wars when the reservation era happened and you had different bands of people put together on different reservations these 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 large thriving inter intricately connected indigenous communities and kinship groups were kind of severed and put onto these these little reservation land bases and so they for example made tribes out of peoples that hadn't previously maybe been living that closely together. They put multiple tribes onto one reservation. Again, everything was designed for the ease of land management in Indian containment by the federal government. So geneticists go into these communities, and what they're interested in is taking a sample from a person who ideally has four grandparents who are from that quote-unquote tribe. They're looking for a a level of populational purity that just can't exist when uh, these tribes are placed on these land bases in during a time of colonial relocation and removal, not to mention all of the ways in which indigenous people move around in the 20th century. There was relocation to boarding schools. There was the termination era in the 1950s, in which the federal government terminated tribes, uh, tried to uh, take away native status from people. And then they found out that didn't work as an assimilation tactic. So they reconstituted tribes. There is the fact that um, a native person from one tribe might go to boarding school somewhere and meet somebody who's Navajo, and then they get together and they have children. And so suddenly you've got these indigenous people who have lineages and multiple official tribal communities. I mean, it's like they think that native people just sit around on the reservation and marry each other and never move around. And we're highly mobile post-colonization and our ancestors were highly mobile pre-colonization. So this conflation of a assuming that a tribe is a biological population is kind of scientifically nonsensical and it's politically and socially nonsensical.
6: I'd like to know, just so we make it really clear to people, because I think when you hear this, it is really shocking that you can be an American citizen or of any place. Mm -hmm. And if you commit a crime such as rape inside a reservation, you cannot be charged by the Native American justice, the courts, the police. And so is it, in fact— Anita and Jenny, kind of like, I mean, people know this having spent some time on reservations in, in, in different states. People obviously know what you can do on a reservation and what you can't do. Mm. I'm going to use a very ugly term, but um, is it a kind of hunting season? Because mm. these men know that they can literally get away with murder right. because they're non-native.
8: I think a vulnerability plays a big role in predatory behavior on tribal lands. Uh, We certainly saw that in the Bakken fields in North Dakota, where I don't think a lot of people realize this, but they had to establish an FBI agency there because violent crimes had surged so highly, and many of those violent crimes were on Native women. Um, And it had been the first bureau that the FBI had opened in like over a decade. Um, so, yeah, I think that that vulnerability does play a huge role. But I would also say that there have been um, strides in responding to violence in tribal communities. The Violence Against Women Act squarely addresses what the Major Crimes Act hadn't done for tribes, which is managing their own justice affairs. Mm-hmm. And you can't really look at that story without looking at how tribes had always been managing their own justices. And it's in part because of the federal government that has done this and broken that system. And so, there's been a steady pace for tribes to beef up their court systems and to allow for the prosecution of non-Native offenders on their tribal lands. But that is imperfect as well, because it just limits non-Native offenders. And, you know, it is a very sensitive topic, but predators are not, you know, exclusive of race.
6: Thank you so much for bringing that up, Jenny, because I know that I was shocked by just like the legal issues around this. Right. But you're right. We cannot forget about the fact that some of this oftentimes is coming from within our own community. Right. Mm -hmm.
8: Yeah. It's a sensitive topic to talk about because right. I mean, especially if you're coming from tribal community, it's one that hasn't healed. And I don't know. I think that cycle of healing, is going to happen for a long, long time. And it's certainly not lost on our, on our indigenous communities. It's one that I think our men are, are really realizing, the leadership of our men are really realizing that I think if we're going to really take a stern look at this issue, it has to come from within.
9: I'd like to add, too, that this is an issue that extends well beyond tribal lands as well. And the rates of conviction or, you know, rates of justice, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. are abysmal off of reservations, too. So, for example, the Urban Indian Health Institute just released a report they studied sexual violence among urban Native women in Seattle. They found 94% of the survey participants had experienced sexual violence and only 8% had seen their perpetrator convicted. Wow! And so even in an urban environment, we're seeing that law enforcement are not handling these cases properly, um, not following up as they should, and communicating to Native women that, that this kind of violence is okay. And that shows perpetrators as well You know, one of the things that I like to remind people is that we've had generations of people grow up on Tiger Lily, Pocahontas. Now we have Twilight, where the only Native woman is a domestic violence victim who doesn't have any lines. Um, Or recently, hostels came out, and the Native women also don't have any lines and are rape victims. When that's the only way that you ever see Native women, and you don't see anyone ever be held accountable for that violence, it's easy to see that, you know, to see us as objects rather than human beings, regardless of where we are.
3: to a daughter and her mom in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm Taylor Payer and I'm the daughter of Delima Payer.
7: And I'm Delima Payer.
3: Taylor and Delima are citizens of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. They're sitting in Taylor's house where Taylor lives with her younger sister. Delima is in town visiting.
9: From Belcourt, North Dakota.
3: And Taylor and Delima are letting me overhear one of their favorite family discussions, finding the right man to donate his sperm to Taylor, who's gay. She really wants a baby and a co-parent.
11: My mom will often, I think, see people around either on the reservation, maybe even on my Facebook, and will call excitedly about maybe they're really handsome. They seem eligible in some way. (laughs) I tease them. Oh, that young man has baby making hips.
3: (laughs) But baby making hips isn't enough. So he's got to be native. But what else do you want him
11: to
9: be? Oh my gosh, they got to be smart.
3: Smart or not, the emphasis is on that native part. And he doesn't even just gotta be native, as Taylor puts it. He's got to have a certain amount of native blood. Their tribe's longevity depends on it. And here's why. For enrollment, there are some tribes like the Cherokee or Chickasaw Nations that use this thing called lineal descent. So their ancestors just have to be enrolled. But for Turtle Mountain, they use something else called blood quantum.
12: Blood quantum, simply is the amount of, quote, Indian blood that an individual possesses.
3: This is Elizabeth Rule. She is a PhD candidate at Brown University, and she specializes in Native American studies. She told me that some tribes say you have to have a certain amount of, quote, Indian blood to be considered a citizen. And different tribes use blood quantum in enrollment in different ways. Like the Navajo Nation, for instance, says you have to have a quarter Navajo blood to enroll. But Turtle Mountain, Taylor's tribe, it requires that people have at least 25 percent of any native blood with some combination of Turtle Mountain. Elizabeth Rule told me there's really no set method for how blood quantum is determined.
12: So the quantum is a fraction of blood that is derived going back to the original enrollees of a tribe who were counted on census or rolls, and then their blood quantum was documented. And usually those original enrollees had a full blood quantum, typically.
3: But how did people know that those original enrollees had a quote-unquote full blood quantum
12: well they didn't and that's one of the major problems with blood quantum today is that a lot of times the people taking the roles were federal government officials who were unfamiliar with native ways of establishing and defining their own communities
3: in other words blood quantum is not this scientific thing it's subjective political Whatever the case, Elizabeth Rule says blood quantum, it could mean
12: a lot for enrollment. Not having a child that's an enrolled tribal member is equivalent to not maintaining citizenship within the same country as your child.
3: Having a kid who can't be enrolled has very real consequences. It can affect a lot of different things.
12: Where that child goes to school, where you can live, what types of services you have access to— What elections you can vote in.
3: She puts it this way in the context of family and nation. Tribal sovereignty, tribal nationhood, has not always been widely accepted. The U.S. federal government didn't want to recognize tribes as their own separate nations at various points in the 1700s or 1800s or 1900s. And one outcome was that the federal government treated Native Americans as a racial group instead
12: of citizens of their own tribes. American Indians have certainly been racialized, and we see that from cartoons, caricatures, mascots. It's really been a societal project to racialize what is actually a very diverse group of political entities and sovereign nations.
3: And this is where blood quantum comes in.
12: Blood quantum emerged as a way to measure Indianness through a construct of race so that over time, Indians would literally breed themselves out and rid the federal government of their legal duties to uphold treaty obligations.
3: In other words, if you don't have a baby with the right person, your tribe could eventually die out. Which brings us back to Minneapolis and Taylor Payer. Even though lots of people see blood quantum as this major thing, for a long time, growing up in North Dakota on the reservation, Taylor didn't even know what blood quantum was. She tells me about this moment. She was 16.
11: So when I went in after I got my license to get this ID, which is something I needed to apply to scholarships and to college to prove that I was Native American and federally recognized, that's actually the first time I learned my blood quantum. She got
3: this card, her tribal identification card, from Turtle Mountains Branch of the Bureau of Indian
11: Affairs. It's a picture ID. It has your name, your date, a recent photo. A lot of times, including my tribe, it includes your blood quantum. Taylor stared at the card. And it said uh, the fraction right on there, and it was sort of a lot less than I would have ever thought. What was, I was it? Are and, you
3: willing to share?
11: Sure. Yeah. So it is 5 sixteenths, which is sort of a funny fraction. Um, and in my tribe, you need to be one-fourth, one-quarter to be enrolled. So you're right above that. Yep. Right above. Um, so my mom is has a slightly higher blood quantum than I do. And my dad has a slightly less blood quantum. It
3: felt weird asking Taylor her fraction and hearing her talk like it had been calculated and told to her on official paper, which it had. I told Taylor that and she agreed. These fractions are bizarre. She's not sure why her fraction is five-sixteenths. Her family doesn't know either. But her general sense is that somewhere in her family line, back when the Bureau of Indian Affairs decided who was or wasn't Native, some
11: arbitrary decision was made. You know, it's dogs, Indians, and horses that get this paper with your degree of blood on it. It's sort of the purebred thing. And it's put on humans. It's put on Native American human beings. And it's a very strange thing. So it's
3: a no-brainer that lots of people see blood quantum as this insidious thing, a way for the federal government to slowly diminish the Native population, to make Native Americans a racial group instead of belonging to their own nations. But if blood quantum is slowly squeezing out a tribe's population, why keep it? I asked Elizabeth Rule this, and she describes it as this colonial catch-22. When she was studying the different systems of enrollment, like blood quantum or lineal descent, where if your ancestors are in, you are too, she says she noticed that Native people on both sides
12: all used this language about survival. Those who defend blood quantum requirements also evoke this language of survival, and they look upon those blood quantum minimums as a way to preserve an already existing closed community that's very close
3: in other words, some people who support blood quantum rules, they don't want to have people enrolling as citizens in their tribe when they have very little connection to it.
12: There have been cases where outsiders want to jump on the bandwagon and claim Indian heritage for their own personal gain.
3: In Rule, she says, it all really comes down to how these tribal nations define community. After all, whatever these tribes decide, it's their right to decide it as their own sovereign nations. And this conflict, it's something that Delima and Taylor are always thinking about.
7: Our research is saying that it's, how do I want to put that, that we're losing
11: our nativeness. Yeah, like we'll so die that, out or something right, like that. Right, right.
3: So even though Taylor doesn't agree with an enrollment system that uses blood quantum,
11: she can't just pretend it doesn't exist. I weighed the two by saying I understand that Native folks who aren't enrolled are still indeed Native, and I selfishly would like my children to have an easier time identifying with their Native culture and get the sort of privileges that are afforded to federally recognized tribal members.
4: We continue to look at Senator Elizabeth Warren's claims to Native American ancestry. She's come under fire since releasing a DNA test showing Native American lineage in her family tree. In a video release Monday, she told her family's story.
13: My mother was born in eastern Oklahoma. It had been Indian territory until just a few years earlier when it had become a state. My daddy always said he fell head over heels in love with my mother the first time he saw her. But my daddy's parents, the Herrings, were bitterly opposed to their marrying because my mother's family, the Reeds, was part Native American. This sort of discrimination was common at the time. So when my mama was 19 and my daddy was 20, they eloped. And together they built a family, my three older brothers and me.
4: Elizabeth Warren has said her mother told her family had ties to the Cherokee and Delaware tribes. But Native Americans across the country are criticizing Warren's decision to use a DNA test to assert her heritage. Chuck Hoskin Jr., Secretary of State for the Cherokee Nation, said, quote, Sovereign tribal nations set their own legal requirements for citizenship and while DNA tests can be used to determine lineage, such as paternity to an individual, it is not evidence for tribal affiliation. Using a DNA test to lay claim to any connection to the Cherokee Nation or any tribal nation, even vaguely, is inappropriate and wrong. For more, we host a roundtable discussion.
14: Joining us from Fargo, North Dakota, is Tara Houska, national campaign director for Honor the Earth. She's an Ojibwe lawyer. And we go to Anchorage, Alaska, where we're joined by Mark Trehant, who is editor of Indian Country Today, a member of the Shoshone-Bannock tribes. In Seattle, Washington, we're joined by Jossie Ross, author, speaker, lawyer and storyteller, member of the Blackfeet Nation, host of the podcast Breakdances with Wolves. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Um, let's go to North Dakota, um, to Tara Houska. If you can respond first to um, uh, Senator Warren releasing her DNA test, indicating a Native American lineage and her video, and your thoughts on this.
15: What I see are some non-Native folks arguing over what Native identity is um, and Native people just being almost entirely left out of the conversation. Um, So we saw that Lindsey Graham now is running around saying, you know, that I have more Indian blood than she does. I should open a casino. It kind of shows just how problematic um, Senator Warren's decision to use this DNA test as her smoking gun. Now, see, I'm Native. I, I said I was. Um, when, in fact, you know, common genetic markers and geographic location does not tell you anything about, you know, which tribe you might be part of or that you might have descendancy from. She couldn't actually locate an ancestor um, having done a genealogy study who is a native person. Um, it's kind of this one drop rule that she's reinforcing all these, you know, understandings of race being something by blood and there being this difference between um, different ethnicities. So well, let's go to
14: Senator Warren in her own words in that video that she released on Monday, talking about her Native American heritage. I'm not enrolled in a
13: tribe, and only tribes determine tribal citizenship. I understand and respect that distinction, but my family history is my family history.
4: So that's uh, Elizabeth Warren, Tara. Can you respond uh, to that and also explain how is it uh, uh, that Native American tribes determine uh, membership?
15: Yeah. You know, I think she's kind of walking back her words because she got this really harsh statement by Cherokee Nation who is saying, you know, that this is really disrespectful and has nothing to do with, um, you know, their sovereign right to determine membership. Um, you know, I I don't think that she's very regretful about this. I think that she's just kind of bowled her way forward on this, on this issue. And, you know, yeah, it's a sovereign right of tribal nations to determine who is a member. It is, you know, relationships of kinship, of community, of You know, a lived experience, it's all kinds of different factors that sometimes can include blood quantum, but blood quantum is something that was created by the colonial government, not by tribal nations. Um, And it's this kind of myth that's been perpetuated by the United States and by uh, many, many Americans who claim to be, quote unquote, part Cherokee, um, you know, and continue these problematic ideas of who Native people are and were. Mm. Let's
14: turn to Republican Senator Lindsey Graham on Fox & Friends Tuesday, saying he plans to take a DNA test in response to Senator Warren.
8: I'm going to take a DNA test, all of you have. I've been told that my grandmother was part Cherokee and Indian, it may all be just talk, but you're going to find out in a couple of weeks because I'm going to take this.: You test. are going to take it. I'm taking it, and the result's going to be revealed here. This is my Trump moment. This is reality TV.: I just that? I'm dying to know. Because <laughs> I'm you dying, you know, I didn't really think much about it, but she's less than one-tenth of one percent. I think I can beat her, I think I can beat her.
16: Right. And if you do beat her, will you ask for a million dollars from the president
7: too? No, I want a casino and a million bucks.
14: <laughs> I want a casino and a million bucks, Tarahaska. That was Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina.
15: Yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly disrespectful and, you know, just really shows um how Warren's behavior, although it's less crude than some of the comments who've been made by Donald Trump about, you know, Pocahontas and demeaning women, it's this You know, historic figure and making that into somehow a slur, um, her behavior is less crude, but it's still problematic. And it's still a complete misunderstanding of what Native identity actually is. And it perpetuates this myth that so many people hold. I mean, you live on the East Coast and you hear almost everyone having this story of being part Cherokee on their mother's side um, when there are real Cherokee people who still live today. And we should respect that and understand who Native people really are.
4: Well, I'd like to bring in uh, Mark uh, Trahant from uh, Anchorage, uh, Alaska. Could you also comment uh, on this controversy? Uh, You've been extremely critical uh, of the fact that Elizabeth Warren has released, has taken a DNA test and released it. Could you explain what your uh, problem with this is, your criticism?
17: Well, the DNA test itself is just another use of a colonial narrative, basically. It, uh, the ultimate goal of a DNA test is to um, prove that Indians are immigrants like everybody else. And it's, uh, again, it takes away from the idea that there's a tribal community with a governing uh, institution that's been around before the United States. And there are reasons that tribes are around with 10,000 year histories in North America.
4: Well Mark, can you explain what you mean by that? Uh there the, the DNA tests are there to prove that uh indigenous people, uh Native Americans are immigrants like everyone else. Why
17: Kim Talbert, uh who's written quite a bit about this, has talked about that, that the it's basically coming up with a, a, a narrative that says uh use of you figure out where folks came from originally and trying to figure that out rather than to connect with the stories. I mean, Shoshone Bannock, for example, one of the things that just uh, I love about my own people is that if you look at the history of North America, we once hunted Mastodon. And you think about that as an arc of history that goes back many generations that is much deeper than a test that you can use.
16: I think it's safe to say that we're all sick of hearing about the Elizabeth Warren, Donald Trump battle over her claims to Native American ancestry, but bear with me for a moment. There are some important issues, both current and historical, that this made-for-TV episode raises. More than anything, it highlights the enduring colonialist mentality that reigns in the U.S., including even from progressive high-profile Democrats like Elizabeth Warren. It also has shown the racist sentiments that have dominated the U.S. government's relationship with Native peoples continues unabated. Trump has long expressed contempt and has held racist views towards Native Americans. And he began calling Warren Pocahontas as a slur against the senator. Trump famously taunted Elizabeth Warren, daring her to take a DNA test to prove that she wasn't lying about claims to indigenous ancestry.
7: And we will say, I will give you a million dollars to your favorite charity, paid for by Trump, if you take
17: the test and it shows you're an Indian,
1: you know.
16: Now, of course, that demand from Trump was absurd and insulting, but not to Elizabeth Warren, primarily. It was insulting to Native communities that have been massacred, persecuted, erased, systematically marginalized by white colonialist political leaders in this country since its foundation. And it's because of this historical revisionism and trivialization and commodification of native culture that we are having this obscene political moment of a president of the United States using Pocahontas as a slur. And you have sitting senators, Warren and Lindsey Graham, rushing to take DNA tests in a charade that further buries the real existential threats faced by tribes in this country. But that's all political theater. There are real, urgent life and death issues facing Native peoples. There's a war on the earth that's being led by the United States government. When Donald Trump came into office, he steamrolled the embattled activists at Standing Rock. Greenlighting the Keystone XL pipeline and other pipeline projects that will leak, that will spill, that are going to poison enormous freshwater aquifer that irrigates much of the central U.S. Donald Trump is encouraging as much drilling for oil as possible, opening millions of acres offshore. At the same time, he is rolling back the already weak emission standards. He's opening protected land like Bears Ears National Monument for mining. He's embracing coal, which scientists have recently warned we need to unequivocally end using immediately. We have ended the war on beautiful, clean coal, and we are putting our great coal miners back to work. In North Dakota recently, thousands of Native people have been disenfranchised from voting by a new voter ID law that will specifically threaten Native people because they don't have specific addresses listed on their nation's documentation. Yet instead of climate change, instead of voter disenfranchisement, instead of these existential threats and real issues facing Native communities, We're discussing Elizabeth Warren's DNA test on whether or not, as Trump says, she's an Indian. In a recent article for The Intercept, our next guest argues, quote, Indianness isn't defined by DNA. It's a legal, social, cultural, and historical construct where indigenous nations self-define the parameters of belonging. Put simply, it's not about who you claim. It's about who claims you. The author of that piece is Nick Estes. He's an indigenous historian, writer, and assistant professor at the University of New Mexico. He is also the founder of Red Nation, and his latest piece for The Intercept was titled Native American Sovereignty is Under Attack. Here's how Elizabeth Warren's DNA test hurt our struggle. He is a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe and of the Ochetee Shakoi. Nick Estes, welcome to Intercepted.
18: Thanks for having me, Jeremy.
16: Just talk a bit about how Trump has used Native Americans, indigenous people in his public pronouncements before and as president.
18: Right. So earlier, when Trump was building casinos out in the Northeast, he publicly baited tribes who were seeking federal recognition at a U.S. uh, Senate hearing and basically said, you don't look like Indians to me. Uh,
17: they don't look like Indians to me and they don't look like to Indians. Now, maybe we say politically correct or not politically correct. They don't look like Indians to me and they don't look like Indians to Indians. And a lot of people are laughing at it and you're telling how tough.
18: And so is. Trump has used um, indigeneity as a sort of a weapon against um, not just indigenous peoples, but anyone that he sees as a political opponent. And so leading up to him using and mobilizing Pocahontas as a slur against Elizabeth Warren. He has a track record as baiting people um, based on race, um, but also using indigeneity as as a slur, as something that he and people like him can define based on appearance or based on a DNA test. So it's part of a longer sort of tradition of just Trump trolling women, trolling Mexicans, trolling immigrants to this country and using them as political fodder to, you know, antagonize um, racial animosity.
16: And what about his use of the term Pocahontas and that name as frequently as he does to the point where he even used it in a derisive manner when he was honoring Navajo code talkers?
17: Although we have a representative in Congress who they say was here a long time ago, they call her Pocahontas. But you know what? I like you. Because you
18: that was a really interesting moment in time. First of all, you had Navajo co-talkers who served during World War II and, you know, arguably helped the United States win that war. And they were sitting in front of a picture of Andrew Jackson, who is a notorious Indian fighter. He implemented the Indian removal policies that targeted the, the so-called five civilized tribes the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Creek, or the Muscogee. And he is held up as a hero not just to Trump, but also um, other sitting American presidents. And before Andrew Jackson, you have presidents such as you know George Washington, who was called by the Haudenosaunee Confederacy town destroyer for his extirpation of Iroquois villages in what is presently New York, and the total war campaign that he waged against indigenous peoples during and after the Revolutionary War. So Trump upholding this brutal anti-Indian figure isn't anything new. And the Haudenosaunee Confederacy to this day calls every sitting president town destroyer in recognition that the United States is a foreign colonizing and occupying power. So when you have Indigenous people, such as the Navajo Code talkers who have served their country, who are just being humiliated by Trump, you know, in front of this picture of Andrew Jackson, it's quintessential Americana in the sense that it's a purposeful forgetting, it's a purposeful distortion of what Native American identity is, it's a purposeful distortion of history And an actual historical figure. Pocahontas was a captive, she was sex trafficked, so to mobilize somebody who otherwise had a tragic, a tragic life as a racial slur against your political opponent is, you know, it cuts really deep to the bone of of what this country is about. You wrote
16: this really provocative and I thought strong story for The Intercept. The title was Native American sovereignty is under attack. Here's how Elizabeth Warren's DNA test hurt our struggle. And in it, you write, like many Native people, I'm jealous of Warren and white people like her. Native plebeians such as myself, a poor Indian kid born on the wrong side of the tracks in Podunk, South Dakota, lack her pedigree and life story. She might as well have rare Romanov ancestry, a secret but ill-fated royal bloodline when compared to my proletarian biography. Expand on that, Nick.
18: When I I saw Elizabeth Warren's um, video that was released and seeing sort of this mythical, you know, um, very Americana portrayal of her life story that, you know, everyone has an indigenous ancestor in their tree.
13: My mother was born in eastern Oklahoma. It had been Indian territory until just a few years earlier when it had become a state. My daddy always said he fell head over heels in love with my mother the first time he saw her. But my daddy's parents, the Herrings, were bitterly opposed to their marrying because my mother's family, the Reeds, was part Native American. This sort of discrimination. It was
18: a kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment, but I don't think some people were laughing as hard as I was, just because it's absurd. And and the quote that I begin with from Vine Deloria about the assertion of an indigenous identity as, you know, something that's mythical has been, you know, a, a common framework of American settler colonialism or U.S. settler colonialism in that it purposely distorts Native American identity that could be laid claim to just as land could be laid claim to. So, like, our bodies, you know, our DNA, because DNA is part of our body, is up for grabs, just like our land. And so are our identities. And that's the way that the United States has treated Indigenous peoples and our land. But it also trivializes what are otherwise complicated questions of identity, because there are people out there, there are people in my own family who are out there who have been lost to us in the sense that they've been adopted out, they've been disappeared at boarding schools, they've been sterilized by the Indian Health Service, And we're still trying to find those people. You know, this is a very serious matter, and it really glosses over this really complicated, very violent history of settler colonialism that is still ongoing. I don't know any other race of people who are, you know, racialized um, with DNA the way that Native people are. and. You know, even Lindsey Graham has come out and said, but you're going to find out in a couple of weeks because I'm going to take this. Test. You are going to take it. I'm taking it. And the results
8: going to be revealed here. This is my Trump moment. This is reality TV. I just I'm dying to know. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm you dying. Can. You know, I didn't really think much about it, but she's less than one tenth of one percent. I think I can beat her. I think I can beat her.
18: Right, and if you
16: do beat her, will you ask for a million dollars from the president too?
18: No, I want
8: a casino and a million bucks.
18: <laughs> <laughs> and that shows the level of disregard and disrespect that you know U.S. politicians, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, have for native sovereignty. And I would ask, you know, Elizabeth Warren, I doubt she's listening to this program. Why wouldn't you hold a rally or? Uh, you know, a march or some kind of press conference and use your visibility instead of responding for a tit for tat to Trump, but actually mobilize your base around issues such as the Texas court striking down the Indian Child Welfare Act or the disenfranchisement of North Dakota Native American voters. What it reveals to me is that the release of this information of her so-called Native American ancestry through a DNA test was pure political opportunism. It makes us seem like a football that either Trump or, you know, Elizabeth Warren or now Lindsey Graham can kick around um, to their benefit when Native people themselves are facing serious challenges to their sovereignty. It trivializes those questions and it trivializes our issues. You
16: know, I think a lot of people that listen to the show followed very closely the uh, struggles of the water protectors and their allies in these battles against the pipelines, Dakota Access Standing Rock being probably the most high profile. Give people a sense of what is happening um across the country in these battles against it's because it's not just the Dakota Access Pipeline. There's several other frontline battles that are being waged right now against these corporations and, in fact, the U.S. government.
18: There's this kind of like winner-takes-all mentality in the United States. And what most people didn't really follow or understand is that a lot of the people who showed up at Standing Rock were already part of movements. The indigenous peoples who were organizing on the ground in the Oceti Shaakoi, the Great Sioux Nation, they were already, you know, organized to oppose the Keystone XL pipeline when it first came through. Or you had people... Um, From Minnesota, the Ojibwe people who were already organized against Line 3, uh, or you had people that came from so-called Canada, the First Nations people, who were already organized against Enbridge, what we now know as Trudeau's Pipeline. So, the sort of convergence that happened at Standing Rock really signaled, in my mind, a sort of transformation taking place in Indigenous countries, a political sort of like call to consciousness around the issues that are facing Indigenous people but also the way that we interact with larger settler society. Unfortunately, settler society can selectively engage us however they choose to. So for example, why is it that Elizabeth Warren is the topic that we're invited to talk shows on or we're invited to give comment on, but we're not invited to talk about the fact that Native people are killed at the highest rate by police in this country or that we face rates of incarceration and poverty that far exceed any demographic or that we're facing existential threats to our water, our land, and even just keeping our children in their own homes. And people say those are very complicated issues. That's not a soundbite. And so the corporate media, you know, it's, it's there to produce and commodify our stories so that they can be easily digestible. But I think it's, it's such a cynical view. Of our country in the sense that we can't hold complicated ideas in our head to say that Elizabeth Warren's claim to Native ancestry or Lindsey Graham's claim to Native ancestry or Trump's use of Native people as a political football can also be talked about in the context of the current pipeline struggles that are happening around Bayou Bridge in Louisiana or our Line 3 up in Minnesota or Keystone XL in Montana in South Dakota and in Nebraska. These are all things that can be talked about. I implore native people who are listening to this podcast um, and elsewhere to think about the ways in which our issues are being framed in the media. And if we're constantly fighting just for representation and for these political elites to acknowledge us, for political elites to recognize our humanity, then we've already lost. The only reason why we had the Indian self-determination act of 1975 was because we had the militant red power movement of the 1960s and 1970s that took Alcatraz
6: Alcatraz for the purpose of taking the island for all Indian people to have a place we could call Indian land.
18: That took Wounded Knee in 1973. But then also launched um, that campaign on the world stage in 1977, gaining international recognition for indigenous peoples across the world. Those were historic gains that were made by everyday grassroots people. Nobody was looking to, you know, the Elizabeth Warrens or the Trumps of the world to sit down and say, you know what, we recognize your humanity. They weren't asking for permission. They were taking it and they were organizing their own communities towards their own needs. But now we're listening to the radio and we're listening to these candidates and they're silent on the issue of war. They're silent on the the issue of, of backing up these imperialist Powers, but also their own imperialism. And that's the thing about imperialism. We never get to vote on imperialism. We didn't get a vote on the Iraq War, but yet we allocate three quarters of a trillion dollars of our defense budget every year to these things. And we know that Native American poverty and land claims could be solved tomorrow because the US has those resources. And I don't think it's a lack of will on the part of an everyday American in the United States, whether they're Native, Black, or white that they can sympathize with Native issues and that they do recognize that these issues are something that confront every American
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Code Switch discussing Thanksgiving. Democracy Now! spoke with historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz also about Thanksgiving. We heard from In the Thick in two parts on the Stolen Sisters. Science for the People interviewed Kim TallBear about indigenous DNA codes which continued the discussion on so-called Indian blood to point out that identity is about much more than blood. Democracy Now! held a roundtable discussion about Elizabeth Warren's DNA test. And finally, we just heard Intercepted speaking with historian Nick Estes about how Native peoples and the issues that matter to them are so often trivialized. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a couple of additional clips, including a comedic look at Warren's DNA test, an example of media reporting poorly on on opinion polls asking about the name of the Washington, D.C. football team, and I will muse for a bit on a decades-old comedy bit about how white politicians see Native people. So to hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
1: Hey Jay, it's Abdul, calling from DC. Sorry, I'm a little nasally, I'm coming down with a cold. Um, I just wanted to respond to the, um, the thread on privacy. I think you're absolutely correct in distinguishing the different types of privacy, government, personal, corporate, social. Um, I also think that it's worth taking a second to distinguish between privacy and secrecy. Secrecy tends to be the sort of like handmaiden, right-wing man, you know, servant of authoritarianism. Um, in my work, for instance, I work with a lot of adult survivors of uh, abuse uh, or ongoing abuse, sexual abuse, other types of abuse and neglect. And it seems like secrecy is always there at the heart of it. And I think you also see that kind of uh, obsession with secrecy in the authoritarian regimes, you know, East Germany, the Soviet Union, uh, I imagine places like North Korea. And I think that we in the United States are sort of on that weird slippery slope because we are, you know, marching towards uh, fascism. And I think that the sort of like obsession with privacy slash secrecy allows certain people to get away with holding or, you know, despicable beliefs or participating in really deplorable actions. And in many ways, as like you said, because we are social animals, the, um, the consequences for our actions come from other people knowing about them. And so privacy taken to its extreme of secrecy allows people To engage, indulge in these sort of horrible thoughts and actions and still hope to get away with it without any social consequence.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to finish off today, I have essentially an activism segment for you. Uh, so so to catch us up on the just the most recent uh, horrible injustice befalling uh, some Native people, In this country, uh, in a reversal of an Obama-era decision, the federal government ruled in September that the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe of Massachusetts does not qualify for a reservation. This decision has the power to take 321 acres of tribal land out of federal trust, effectively disestablishing the tribe's reservation and eliminating their self-governance. With this ruling, the Trump administration is unearthing a disgusting tactic the United States government has used to destroy tribes in the past. The only way to protect the tribal land now is for Congress to pass the bipartisan Mashpee Wapanoag Tribe Reservation Reaffirmation Act. If the Mashpee Wapanoag tribe sounds particularly familiar, it may be because this is the Native American tribe of the Thanksgiving origin story lore. The tribe says their ancestors have occupied the land in southeastern Massachusetts since before human memory. Here are just some of the tribal voices of the movement fighting to protect their legal right to the land.
2: No matter whose name is on papers or whatever office, this land knows us as indigenous. It knows us as one it. Thank you so much for walking through Mashpee today. We needed to remind our neighbors that indigenous people live here.
12: When we heard about the DOI decision to dispossess Mashpee people of what remains of their ancestral lands, we were shocked and appalled. Your right to occupy your traditional homeland is a right that the
5: government cannot extinguish. For how can they extinguish something that they did not create? We have to continue on. We need to get this bill passed because Congress has the authority to stop this in its tracks right now. We also have a responsibility to the other 127 tribes that got their federal acknowledgement after 1934. If they get us, they're coming for them too. So we need to stand up for our brothers and sisters, as well as ourselves.
1: If they can do this to the one of the most well-documented tribes in America, they can do this to any tribe. And in this march, we actually did the most sovereign thing possible, and that's simply walking on our land on our terms. This is powerful as indigenous people, but us as common people, as a Chacha, people who are come from a tradition of warriors, we have to look in ourselves and say, what are
0: we willing to do? What is at stake, and what are we willing to risk? This is a
17: perversion of justice. This is a perversion of truth. And we need to call it and name it for what it is. This is an extension of colonialism. This is
0: genocide. This is an attempt to make us go extinct. We have less than one half of 1% of our land, and they want to take that too. When is
16: enough enough? The blood and the bones that we stand on this land. It's the blood that flows through our systems. It's our genealogy. It's our life. It's our breath. It's the air that we breathe. I believe as we stand here today, people from our past, our ancestors, are standing right here with us. And it's that power that the Creator passed down to us. That power. That energy. That strength. And
1: that's
17: why Mashpee is still here today. The world needs to know that Mashpee stands strong today. And the world needs to stand with Mashpee. We're
5: going to take this fight, this walk, to the steps of the Department of Interior in Washington, D.C., first week in November. Be ready.
10: Be ready. Stop touching.
0: You can help the Mashpee Wapanoag tribe reinstate their federal trust by calling your members of Congress in the House and Senate today to tell them to pass the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe Reservation Reaffirmation Act. Visit MASHPE, M-A-S-H-P-E-E, Wapanoag, W-A-M-P-A-N-O-A-G, tribe-nsn.gov to learn more and find out other ways to support the tribe in this fight. You can also help amplify this action by using the hashtag #StandWithMashpee on social media. Now, for me, this is the important thing take away from this. So, for instance, I already have plans for a future episode that, that's going to focus on the relationship between imperialism and native peoples, uh, but the thing to know about it is that it's not over. The, the legacy of imperialism and colonization is not something that exists in the past, and the solution isn't just to come to terms with our history and write past wrongs or anything like that. It's about opposing the elements of imperialism, colonization, and systemic oppression in the here and now because these patterns never stopped. They just changed shape. Of course, with the Trump administration, as usual, they've been kind enough to take the masks off and show their actions for exactly what they are. As always, I would love to hear your comments on this or anything else the number to dial, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this